0: A reading from the Gospel of John, verse 53 through chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mountain of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it,
1: One of the challenges we need to deal with today is that we have so much personalized data about each of us as individuals. You know, the web collects things every time we make a search or make a purchase, but even those who carry a smartphone, uh, there's just so many facts about you that are being recorded and there's a lot of advantages to that, a lot of great things, Uh, but there's a number of negative byproducts and one of them, a quirk of how many of us are wired, is that uh, Things that in previous generations, where there was a blissful ignorance that you just didn't know about, now you have information on to give you feedback about things that don't really matter, but may affect you. So for example, the magic number for how many steps you should take has been revealed. It's 10,000. And so you feel inspired. Actually, I wanna be a relatively healthy person. Don't need to be a super athlete and then you have a day where you feel like you're going above and beyond you're walking far more than ever and you're feeling good and thinking i probably walked 15 16000 steps and uh and i'm feeling good about it and then you check your phone and you walked 7000 not a big deal now you know the fact that but what you thought was above and beyond communicates to you actually you still didn't meet the standard, not good enough. And you read about the impact of spending too much time on digital media and you sort of do the math and figure if you check your phone every five minutes of every hour and then you have a significant time, maybe, maybe you're using the phone like an hour and a half a day. That's, that's kind of a lot. So then you wanna make some habits to change that and then you check your phone and you find out that you average six hours a day, had no idea. And so there's something there that's wonderful. Now you have a standard. Now you actually can make changes, but it's another communication to you that says you're not good enough. Well, who cares on the standard of how many steps you take or how much you use your phone? Focus on the major things, but, but now we can't just focus on the major things. Could I just be good at my job? Could I be good at this? But now everything is communicating in some way, you're not good in a lot of places. You know, I'm not that old, but I grew up in a period where I didn't realize a lot of the places I was not good and there was something freeing about that certain things don't matter now i'm aware, in a lot of things that don't matter i'm not good enough. And I should have the maturity to say well it doesn't matter, but you get into a certain mindset where you're starting to feel not good enough and something dumb like 7000 steps just is another data point to say yeah you're not. And so this mindset of condemnation that some of us have that we feel stuck in, that objective data, not even valuable, somehow the world is starting to communicate to you. You don't belong, you're not good enough, it's hopeless, and so it doesn't matter about 10,000 steps or it doesn't matter about phone usage, but at work where you're struggling to be good, these are just data points to remind you you're not good at anything and therefore you're probably fooling yourself if you think you're good at what you do where it matters. It's a problematic trap. It's a way of thinking, but many of us are vulnerable to that. Now, when you read about the law in the Bible and especially the New Testament, it's an interesting thing because the New Testament does not speak negatively about the law of Moses. So the first five books are called the law, Torah. It reveals God, what he has done and his particular commands for the nation, Israel. The New Testament does not say that the law is problematic Rather, it's righteous. It's a good revelation. It doesn't have a problem with Moses or with Jewish people. The New Testament says there's a problem in human beings and that the very law that reveals God and his ways that could give life winds up having a different impact on us. Rather than inspiring us, rather than guiding us, rather than just restraining us, it somehow communicates con- condemnation to us. Uh, and Jesus is entering a time period where they're wanting to find out Who is this man in relation to the law? How does he handle it? How does he teach? Very valuable, very legitimate. But we're looking at a story where they're coming to him with a question about how he would apply the law. A woman caught in adultery. Here's what Moses says. What do you think? Well, what's happening that seems simple. A person did something in violation of the clear measure of the law, which has a clear consequence. It seems like a simple question, but the situation is very complex. And the complexity, is highly problematic so here's a situation where the law is being used but it's in some ways being misused and this is the very thing that jesus is trying to get at and john is highlighting for us in the gospel that jesus has come into the world to give life well, we are so stuck that we can't see it, we can't recognize it, and we're we're ready to mishandle everything. The problem is not God. The problem is not God's ways. There's something in every human being that's oriented wrong, and then we create the cultures and the societies so that God doesn't make sense, his ways don't make sense, and we wind up having a problem with Jesus rather than seeing the goodness of the good news. So, Because the question he asks to this woman in verse 10 is, has no one condemned you? I want that theme of condemnation to be what uh, I'm highlighting today to talk about because one of the things Jesus is doing is he's exposing this culture of condemnation that we're all stuck in, and he's inviting us out of it. So the good news is really good news if we're able to see it. And we're not always able to see it, but let's take a look this morning. Now, as a quick side note... If you read this passage in your bible there's often a note that says the earliest manuscripts don't have this story in it so it's quite actually a challenge of of trying to understand was this story original it doesn't feel like it was written by john how did it wind up in john's gospel um i would love to take 10 minutes to spell that out but i just don't feel that i have that time so if that's a hard question for you find me after the service or email me i'm happy to talk that through with you. Uh, But the story certainly seems consistent with everything we know of Jesus. It sounds like a real event. It winds up in our Bible. And if for any reason um, there's any question in your mind of whether or not this was inspired by the Holy Spirit, if you interpret it in its context of the Bible, you'll find that uh, consistent with whatever else is happening in the rest of the Bible, we could still draw consistent true things from it. And so I believe that God has given us this passage that Jesus did this, but uh, that question is complicated enough that if you wanna hear more of what I think about it, feel free to find me or meet with me afterwards. Uh, But I wanna focus on what we're seeing in the passage. And if I could be honest, I'm really preaching to you a sermon from Romans today in terms of the architecture in the back of my mind, but this passage is a wonderful illustration. So let's go through this passage. And um, I'm beginning with what I'm calling the cycle of condemnation. That's just the first starting place. One of the ways to recognize human beings have a problem is precisely this cycle that once something negative is introduced, once condemnation, once, once the voice, wherever it comes from, says you're not good enough, it's actually easier to spiral downward than to get out of that. And it's kind of like the cycle of revenge that you see as, uh, you know, classic themes in the literature. Once you've harmed someone... It's hard not to keep going back and harming each other because it feels unjust not to do it. But then the result is more and more damage, more and more damage. In the name of justice, we get stuck. And so there are ways to make things right. There are things that we need to do anytime there's harm and there's injustice. So we don't just accept it. But we always need to accept a certain messiness that things never resolve completely, that to bring peace, something unfair in our world often remains. That's not good. We don't love it. We don't aim for that. Um, but the alternative is the cycle of vengeance. I th- there, there's a similar dynamic. As soon as the voice, you're not good enough. As soon as the mindset of condemnation uh, starts to be how you're reasoning, it's hard to get out of it. It feels unfair. It feels untrue. It feels unjust. It feels like the, the most true reality is along the lines of, I'm not good enough or you're not good enough, or somebody's not good enough. We get caught up in this uh, critical mindset and spirit that is nearly impossible to escape. Now, I'm highlighting that because that, I think, is part of the dynamics of what's happening here. You know, in that cycle, that I'm describing it as a cycle, which is you experience condemning feelings or failure or some critical voice. And what happens is uh, those feelings that affect how you in- how you start to interpret everything. You start to see the world differently as though it's uh, communicating to you um, problematic things. And then you start to behave differently out of that hurt. Either you are not forthright and honest or you uh, have the desire that others would share in your pain and you spread that. And, and there's this downward spiral. Uh, the interesting thing is Jesus is coming to his people at a time where they seem stuck. And, and one of the examples is that in this scenario that on the surface level seems a good scenario. Hey, Jesus, you claim to be sent by the Father, sent by God. Well, we want to know, are you consistent with the scriptures, with the law? That would be fair. So Jesus, here, we're coming with questions about the law and how you apply it. That would be totally appropriate. But our narrator indicates that's not actually what's going on. So I'm going to read verses three to six. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Jesus, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. So that's the thing. It's one thing about testing. If we want to really understand if this guy is right, that's fine. Their testing is not to, to discern the truth, but to expose him uh, with their presupposition. They've already decided, we don't like him. We are against him. So when they come with the question, it's not to, to try to discern. It's to, They're trying to trap him. So when it says that they're testing him, it's so that they would have a charge to bring against him. And so in John 7, verse 19, a passage we looked at a couple of weeks ago, Jesus says to the scribes and the Pharisees, he says, none of you keeps the law, which seems like a preposterous statement when they're so careful to spell out the details of the law and to do it and to hold others accountable to it. But Jesus is saying, yeah, in an external way, you're, you're keeping all sorts of rules, um, but you're misapplying, or you're misusing the law. And here's an example the law that's meant to bring life. You're coming not to evaluate me against it, but to use it in order to condemn me. You're taking hold of the law and using it for your purposes to condemn. None of you are keeping the law. That's not what Moses is aiming at. The law is not going to give life if that's how you're handling it. And so they're trying to trap him with this issue that seems clear, but but you could probably already get an indication of this is not clear. There's already some suspicious elements of how this story is unfolding. Um, But so for example, in their wanting to to trap him, you know, one possible way that this could go wrong is Jesus has been walking around announcing good news, life, forgiveness. And now is Jesus one of these people that's so loose that he's going to say, actually... It doesn't matter what somebody do, did. Moses was a little bit too strict and harsh. If they could get Jesus to say that, then people will know this guy cannot be sent of God because you wouldn't contradict Moses. But, but there are other layers here because it's kind of like there's another passage where they come and they ask Jesus, is it appropriate for us to be t- paying taxes to Caesar? And it's one of these, uh, there's no right answer for that because if he says, yes, you should, sort of in the the nationalism of his day, they would have said, he's not here to lead the people of Israel. He's a sympathizer with the Roman occupiers. But if he would have said, absolutely do not pay taxes, they could go to Rome and be like, look, here's a guy that's turning the people against you. The goal is to trap him. Um, It's not clear if they had the right under the Roman empire to execute somebody for breaking the law of Moses. So if Jesus says, Absolutely, you should condemn her. We don't know what they would have done, but one possibility is they would go to Rome and say, Jesus is telling the people of Israel to kill people, to enforce laws, not under you. So they set up a scenario so no matter what Jesus says or does, they have some means of opposing him. And this is the problem. When, when you're testing people, it's one thing to be, we need to think critically. That's not the problem. We need to, to analyze. We need to reason. We need to draw conclusions. But I'm talking about a critical spirit. When you've already decided my goal is, is to, uh, to have a certain outcome, and then I'm going to create a scenario that it looks like we're honestly engaging, but we're not, that's a problem. And we do this sometimes in ways that we don't think are harmful or or we don't intend as harmful like when we test people that in our insecurity we're watching if i do this what will that person do with the hope that they will prove that they love us and and that's not necessarily manipulative but if you're putting testing out there odds are the scenarios will fail that that even if you or the person passed that situation if that's how you're relating the relationship will likely fail if you're constantly not being straightforward but setting someone up to see what they would do if it validates what you are hoping will happen, there's so much that could go wrong that that just doesn't lead to relational health. Uh, But the deeper problem is when we have uh, actually that secret desire to test somebody with the hope that they'll fail. There's the argument we want to have that we don't have legitimate grounds for, so we need to create the context so that the argument could happen. And then what happens is, you're never really talking about the actual thing we're not owning what the issues are and we're perpetuating confusion so that argument which could lead to a resolution if there's a problem let's be straightforward let's be clear, we could be passionate. You want to we're not against conflict we're not against disagreement we're for truth we're for reconciliation. The problem is when we set up these false terms here's what we're talking about and we're using the language of being just and truthful and giving evidence that we're right, but the goal from the outset is, I want to be right, and I want to prove you wrong, and I want you to feel humiliation, and I'm feeling something that's negative, and I want you to feel it. That undermines relational health, and so besides damaging the relationships that we're in, it damages us. You can't exist that way and and then have some good and bad relationships. If you're testing people, if you're constantly provoking, if you're Uh, goal at the outset is to be critical. You will undermine everything good. You'll just chase it away from you and increase your misery. But we get so stuck that as soon as that feeling is there, that I'm dissatisfied, I'm unhappy, I'm not good enough, It's hard not to perpetuate those patterns. And you could be fighting to do it, but then you have that problematic coworker or that family member who has their issues. And and no matter what we're trying to do, we just get stuck in these scenarios where there's no right way to do it. Here they present, here's just a simple question for you, Jesus. And no matter what he does, it seems like they can use against him. That's part of life in this world. It's discouraging, it's a problem, but it shows that when Jesus comes to say in John 3.17, I have not come to condemn you, but to save you. And then John 3.18, he says, but whoever does not believe is already condemned. What he's saying is it's not that God is giving you a, a pass fail quiz on one question. Will you believe in Jesus or not? He's saying, do you realize that you exist under condemnation? And Jesus is coming to invite you out of that. And he's uniquely calling you to leave it. But if you're responding with your cynicism saying no thanks then you're going to find that you're actually stuck in it jesus is not coming to condemn you he's coming to invite you out of condemnation into a different paradigm that's hopeful for breaking this cycle that we feel stuck in there is a way forward and jesus says if you trust me i will lead you in that way so you don't need to be stuck in a downward spiral but you're going to need to listen and to follow and to believe uh, in order to get out of it. So I've been talking about this cycle of condemnation that in John, Jesus keeps saying stuff like, you, don't, you can't even see it, you can't understand it. Unless God's spirit works, you're stuck. But I'm coming to announce good news. Uh, what I want to talk about next is uh, the second thing, exposing condemnation. So first, the cycle of condemnation. But now this scenario is exposing. So that's what I'm saying exposing condemnation. They're trying to set up Jesus. They're not trying to expose Jesus. They're trying to trap him. But somehow the way Jesus responds in the situation exposes a little bit more of what's going on so that the truth of what's happening can be seen. So um, in verse 7, he says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. So he's asking Jesus to function as sort of, you know, the jury to make a decision. And now Jesus is talking about, you know, okay, if I make the decision, uh, who of you is worthy to, to follow this out. He he's sort of spells out a couple of things. Now, first of all, it's interesting when he says, let the one who is without sin be the first to throw a stone. One thing that's unique about Jesus. So Jesus is a human being in ways that we're human beings. Jesus is subject to illness and disease and temptation as we are. The Bible makes a unique claim about him that he is without sin. So it's interesting, Jesus, by his own standard, let the one who is without sin be the first to throw the stone. Theologically, we could say he's establishing himself as the one who has the right to condemn. That's not his purpose in saying that. When he says, uh, let the one who is the first to, uh, let the one who is without sin be the first to throw the stone. One thing that he's not saying is, unless you're perfect, you cannot make judgments. I mean, how would we have a justice system in our world uh, if the jury needed to be people who never did anything illegal in their lives? There'd be nobody qualified. And so imperfect people still need to make judgments. Our world is imperfect and we still need to fight for justice. Jesus is not saying you can never make a decision or you can't enforce laws. Um, What he's doing is deeper. And and what he's doing is exposing uh, what's really happening. When Jesus says, I have not come to condemn you, He's saying if you want to talk about the law, let's just allow the standard of the law to be what's happening here. And it's not that I condemn you, but you are condemning yourselves by the way you're coming into this scenario, trying to misuse the law for your corrupt agenda. So so the kinds of things a contemporary reader would look at, which is the law of Moses does not say women cannot commit adultery, but that nobody could commit adultery. Raises the question in what way did they catch her? If they caught her in the act, why is there a woman and not a man there? That doesn't look like it's the justice that Moses commanded. Um, Also, it's interesting, and they're dragging this woman there at this point. um, Why is this woman being used as an object towards some other end? She's not a human being that we're looking for justice for, but she's. Uh, something that's being used to trap Jesus, uh, the disrespect there. Uh, the law required two witnesses. They haven't come and made a case to say, here are people that saw it. They're asking Jesus for quick decision without following the very principles of the law of Moses. What Jesus is doing when he's saying, let the one who is without sin be the first to throw the stone. He's saying, if we're really concerned about faithfulness to the law and uprightness, Well, let's keep the law of Moses. Why don't we apply it to this scenario? And Jesus is saying, I'm not condemning you. Let's rightly interpret the law. And then what do we do next? And by holding them to their own standards, uh, they seem to have gotten that they were now stuck. They came to trap Jesus. And the point is not, what a genius Jesus is. Look at him. Nobody could trick him. If we're only more like Jesus, we could get out of all of the scenarios. The point is Jesus is the one person here without sin. And so the things that would trap us, our fear, our, uh, our desire for control, our concern about how we would perceive, Jesus is not subject to those things in the way that we are. And so he's able to stick with the consistency of the law in all of its fullness. And therefore, he, it's not that he did the one thing that you need to learn his model so you could do it elsewhere, but he is just not going to get pulled in he's gonna keep the standard and then find who is condemned by it. So in verse nine, it says, when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. So who should be the first to throw the stone? Wouldn't it be the elders, the the respectable, the righteous, those with life experience? Why don't you be the first to throw the stone? And something happened where... those who had the responsibility for holding the law were the first not to throw the stone, but the first to leave. And they no doubt would have left <clears throat> a bit embarrassed, a bit discouraged. And, and we, we sort of love those stories. I remember watching a video some years ago of an elderly woman that was crossing a street at a stop sign. And this young guy driving too fast pulls up and stops right before her in a convertible. So the, I don't, the video was able to catch catch this quite well. And as the woman was passing the front of the car, he honked the horn really loud. You can imagine how terrifying that would be. And the woman got annoyed. She had this pocketbook and she just hit the grill of the car with it. And this car looked like one of these like super fancy cars that probably, you know, the car that I drive, I could run into a pole and it will not let the airbag out. But uh, she hit grill with, with her pocketbook in the airbag, just smash the guy in the face. You know, that kind of video goes viral because we hate, like, why why does this guy need to be like that? And we want a world in which if that's how you behave, it, it comes back on you. And But Jesus here is not just in the way that that woman had, she was just frustrated and she responded. And I don't know, maybe she would have if she was uh, 40 years younger and an MMA, MMA fighter might have pulled the guy out of the car, but you know, maybe the best resource she had was just to hit, hit with the pocketbook. Uh, but that, that's the kind of thing, we, we want a situation like this where these guys are coming in and we hate it and we want to humiliate them. But the interesting thing is that's not what Jesus does. They're coming in with a corrupt power dynamic. Can we trap you? And Jesus' response is, well, let's just look at the truth. If the law is what you hold to, Let's allow the law to determine who is condemned, and then they, they leave. You know, there's this interesting feature here that it's hard to make sense of. Verse eight. Once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. And you know, you read this and you think, what on earth did he, what was he writing? You know, practicing is he's trying to solve a math problem, Pythagoras. Yeah, what was this thing? And so, we have no idea what he was writing. It's kind of an interesting question, but whatever answer we have is speculative, and we don't even know why he was writing. But but if you think about the effects of his kneeling down and writing. Imagine if these people came in to trap you and you saw what they were doing. They're, they're there using everything they can to humiliate you and they're doing it corruptly in unfair ways. Everything is problematic. Wouldn't you want to look them in the eye and say, who of you, uh, is without sin? Now get out of here. And you're going to stare them down until they leave. That's how, that's how our movies play out these scenarios so that we feel relief. Jesus does not come to condemn. But he comes to walk in the truth. And so when he looks down, he gives them the opportunity. Uh, He's not staring at them to humiliate them. He's holding them to the truth. They could have stayed and said, actually, teacher, we have more questions. But it's interesting that, that as he's looking away, they chose to leave. And we don't know what happened. I imagine some of them might have found themselves saying, let's be honest about what we went to do. We sought to trap him, and that was wrong. That could have been part of the conversation. But read the context of John 7 and 8. John is telling us explicitly they're talking about killing Jesus. And the interesting thing about this mindset of condemnation is you came unjustly to set someone up for failure. They didn't take the bait. It's very likely that instead of leaving and saying, he's just holding us to the very law we want to use to condemn him, uh, that they would have left only further angered further stuck in their condemnation and advancing their plot to kill Jesus. This is not conspiracy theory. We know how John ends. They do kill Jesus. He speaks the truth, and then he looks down and he stays. They have an opportunity to remain, to interact. He doesn't cast them out. He doesn't humiliate them. But they're so stuck on condemning him that they're unable to see the good news. And yet the woman who maybe, if it is true that she was caught in adultery, assumed she would not get caught at this point, she has been humiliated. And another interesting thing about Jesus' choice to kneel down and draw on the ground is it's drawing attention to himself. You know, These corrupt people come and they say, look at her, now what will you do? Jesus does something so people are looking at him and then they leave and then he looks and he speaks to this woman. And it's a very different way of existing in this situation. You know, the mechanism for change in the Christian life is not condemnation. So many people read the Bible and they think the message is, you are in trouble and you are going to suffer unless you become religious like us. The message of the Bible is, do you realize how bad the situation is that you can't even recognize goodness? And yet God is so kind that he is going to show you his goodness. And so he looks at the woman, and what does he say to her? It's a question, verse 10. Has no one condemned you? (laughs) Are the people here that brought you here convinced that they had it right and that you were wrong? Um, Has anyone condemned you? And of course, when Jesus is drawing attention away from her to himself, we know the significance of that theologically in John, which is, It's not that Jesus is declaring that condemnation doesn't exist, that it's a myth, that it's a mindset. He's coming to actually deal with condemnation. So why is it that this woman isn't condemned? It's not because she's perfect. Jesus is very clear with his language. But the one without sin, throw the first stone. and to the woman go and sin no more. He's very truthful, he's very explicit. He has the label justly to say there's a deep problem here with us. We're, we're a sinful humanity. And yet the question is, will you be condemned? And the answer we know is he is drawing attention away from her to himself because they do not have the right to throw stones against her. They certainly don't have the right to throw stones against him, but they will. And what Jesus is saying is I have not come to condemn you, but I have come and they are going to condemn me. And my condemnation is on your behalf so that you can be free of condemnation. The mechanism of the Bible is not that condemnation is not a reality, not that there's no justice, not that wrongdoing doesn't need to be made right. It's that Jesus, who is the only one who can condemn, chooses not to and makes things right by bearing the penalty. He doesn't just say, let's call a truce, but he brings an end. He allows the last strike, the last violence, the last hostility, the last insult to be thrown. And he bears it. And then he says, enough. So now can we begin with grace? Can we live a different life? And some of us will allow our cynicism to say, I don't want it. (laughs) I don't want to be free of my anger. I want to continue to blame God. I want to continue to reject. We're not seeing that he's saying, I will bear the condemnation, the very thing that's poisoning your soul. You don't need more willpower. You don't need more self-help. I will take it from you. Uh, Jesus is without sin. He doesn't throw the stone, but he says, is there no one to condemn you? And what he's implying is, I'm the only one who would condemn you and I won't. (laughs) So then stay with me and learn the way of grace. Gain a new mindset. It's the way that Jesus pulls us out of the cycle of condemnation, that he bears our condemnation and then he invites us into his life. That's the mechanism of the Christian life. So here's the, the third thing I want to talk about, being free of condemnation. So there's a cycle of condemnation. There's exposing condemnation, what Jesus is showing, in, again, the nature of the problem. But he's inviting us to be free of condemnation. So uh, that, that verse 11, when he says, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. That's not the logic of our world. What we would expect if we were to to just make up what we think Jesus should do, is the phrase would be, go and sin no more, and then I will not condemn you. That's how many of us live, even the Christian life. Jesus says, I do not condemn you. Now go and sin no more. He's offering us a way out. He's not calling us to perfection. Now that I did this, you better not make a mistake. He's saying, I'm I'm pulling you out of the very cycle that's keeping you in the pattern of sin. The commandments are not so inspiring that, that you're keeping them. But there's that heart that will use even the good, faithful commandments of God in twisted ways. What you need is grace. I don't condemn you. And if you receive that by faith, then you're called to a life where you're now not functioning under sin. And it's not that sin is no longer a big deal because it's forgiven. It's sin is exposed for what it is. It is a big deal. It's destructive. It's destructive to you and everyone around you. You know that, and yet you can't let go of it. Jesus is saying, here's how you let go of it. Take hold of me. I will not condemn you. I will accept you with all of your imperfection, and I will stay with you with your current imperfection. But stay with me so that you're out of this condemnation. The issue is not whether or not you're good enough. The issue is what have I done, and are you going to trust me to follow me? And that's how we start to live from the inside out—very different lives. <clears throat> I'd heard, a, I watched an interview recently. Uh, it struck me—it it was a, a guy that, I guess is he was in his 30s, in a really difficult path uh, past. So he, he had a hard family life. He described a very harsh father who he hated. Then he talked about in his early teenage years getting in such trouble that he needed to be sent away to kind of a reformed institution, sort of like a a residential, uh, you know, middle school and high school. And when he got when he was free from that, he went through some of what he did. So he he was part of gang culture, the guy was heavily tattooed, Uh, not minor things, not harassing people, not, you know, shoplifting, seriously problematic things, he gets caught, he goes to prison. So he gets out of prison, what I'm thinking was in his early 30s, uh, maintains his relationship with his mother, no relationship with his father, hasn't spoken to them, his mother and father, I don't remember if they were still together, but whatever the case is, his mother invites him to church. He didn't wanna go, he went there, he did not like what was happening, but um, he wound up you know, staying, and over time, uh, God opened his eyes, changed his heart. So he went to the pastor, And as he was talking with the pastor, the pastor said to him, you know, you need to go and you need to apologize to your father. At that point in the interview me as a pastor, I'm thinking, would I ever have given that advice? I don't know. I still don't know that I would have. He said, you need to go and apologize to your father. And I found myself thinking, I've got a lot to learn or that seems like bad pastoral advice. I don't know. I'm still trying to make sense of it. So the guy contacts his father who's kind of resistant. Like, what is it you want to talk about? And they sit down and he says, dad, I want to apologize to you. And his father says, for what? And he says, I know that it brought shame on the family, that I was doing illegal things, that I don't look like the son you'd want me to, to be, that I went to prison, all of these things. I know how hard it was for you as a father. And the reason that I would not give the pastoral advice is my fear is that the father then would say it's about time. <laughs> now, here's what you need to do next. But in God's provision, the father broke down in tears and said, it was never you. It was always me. I've been a terrible father. And then he went through for an hour and named all of his regrets. And, and that changed their relationship. So, so maybe it was good pastoral advice. Maybe it wasn't half of what I do, God works despite it. That's the beauty of being within the Christian community. That moment God redeemed that now years later, there's reconciliation. There's still pain. There's still difficulty, but he loves his father. They have a renewed relationship Uh, because they didn't come to condemn each other. They came with humility, willing to own their own part of it. And that broke things down and it ended the cycle. And certainly I'm sure there was a group of people praying for that meeting that I think probably had a lot to do with why that meeting went right. Um, The Christian message is if you're just always truthful and the Christian message is not, if you're always truthful and honest, everything in the world will go well. Just be willing to own things, be humble, trust that people will never take advantage of you. That's the effective way, is to always be willing to, to bear the cost. Uh, we live in a world that you will do that and people will take advantage of it, that some people will not be changed by grace and kindness. But the reason we're not doing it is pragmatic, is because we are exposed now to the reality that we could either stay stuck in our cynicism, our anger, our fear, and we could use it to try to protect us. <laughs> Or we could recognize that is the most harmful, self-destructive thing we can do. And I'm just going to live in grace, allowing Jesus to be the one who defines who I am. And I'm going to just seek to do the right thing and hope it has a good outcome. And I'm going to go to the one who won't condemn me when everybody else does, despite what I'm trying to do. That dynamic allows you to go out into the world and to try to be the faithful one and to fail. And to not know why you failed. Maybe it's because they're so corrupt, they're, they're hard-hearted, or maybe... You thought it was faithful, but you're still learning about yourself. Actually, it wasn't entirely faithful. You had some hidden agenda or you did something wrong. The cycle that that otherwise keeps us from learning and growing in that situation is broken. When Jesus says, come back, I don't condemn you. (laughs) Strive to live an upright life, but but you're not trying to prove anything to me. You're trying to live the life of grace and go. And if you fail and the world doesn't encourage you or receive you, I'm the only one who can condemn and I don't condemn you. So return to me and be healed and be renewed and understand that the way of grace is fundamentally the better way to live. So live in that reality. John opens his gospel in chapter one, verse 17. He says, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. It's not a criticism of the law, The law is unable uh, to to give us life because we first need grace (laughs) because the law is going to show us the truth that we fall short of its standard. Jesus comes and says, but even if you fall short, and that's Romans 5, even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. It's not once we turned from our sin. It's not once we got our lives together. It was while we were still sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. That's grace, and that's truth. And he says, then, if you come with me, uh, you can live in a whole different paradigm, a whole different way. It's not that it's easy. It's not that it's perfect. You're going to need to learn this new paradigm. but, But allow these words to be what shapes your mind this week as you go back into this world. This is Jesus speaking a word for you. Neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Try it. Let me pray for us. Our Father, here again as we gather, we need your grace. We need your truth. We need to understand that despite our imperfections, you are merciful and kind, and you call us to a better way, and you forgive us, and you watch over us, and you protect us. And Lord, we pray for a working of grace so that our eyes would be opened to the, to the love of Christ, that our hearts would not be so hard that we would reject him because we're choosing the way of rejection, but instead that we would choose the way of receiving grace. And Lord, bring it into our lives uh, and help us so that we are free of condemnation and that we could live upright, faithful lives in this world. Watch over us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.